I felt a sudden upwelling of energy as I sat down to, to, to this afternoon. Um, after having met with about two-thirds of you over the past couple days, I've seen evidence of a lot of wise effort, I think, being uh, exerted here in, the, in this retreat. And, uh, and it really, it warms my heart, really, to see the sincerity of effort that, that everyone puts in. Um, Inez yesterday spoke uh, beautifully about uh, the first two of the four aspects of wise or right effort, preventing unhelpful mind states from arising and then uh, abandoning them or letting them go uh, if, they're, if they're already present. And I'm going to be talking about the second half, the C and the K of the PAC acronym that um, uh, Inez uh, introduced yesterday, PAC. Preventing, um, abandoning, cultivating, and keeping are the four letters. So I'll be talking about cultivating useful mental states or attitudes and then keeping them going when they're already present in us. So... I'm one of those people who tend to see uh, the flaws in things before I see the upside. <laughs> My husband is nodding his head in the back there. <laughs> he knows this well. So, you know, more one of the people who sees the glass as half empty, maybe, more than half full. So if I come home from a long trip like this, been away from home for three weeks, when I go home, I'm more likely to see that the orange tree needs watering than I am, you know, to see my lovely garden and my sturdy house and be grateful that, uh, that it's there for me to come home to. And uh, I've actually found that the perspective that I orient around often c pretty useful in my life because uh, it leads to me being pretty detail-oriented. I'm a really good planner. If you want your vacation planned, I'm the one to come to. Um, I'm a good editor. I'm well-organized. But, uh, of course, there's a big downside. And part of the downside has been a tendency to overlook or ignore the good things in, in life, including my own mental states. If something doesn't need to be worked on, it's really easy for me to ignore it, just to overlook it. So I'm really glad to be talking about this half of the four wise efforts because uh, uh, it's something that I often need reminding about myself still. Whatever's going on on the outside of our lives, whether it's <coughs> excuse me, really delightful or not so great, difficult, it's what's going on in our minds uh, and our hearts that pretty much determines you know, how we're going to experience it, how, uh, how we're going to feel about it, how we're going to feel about our lives moment to moment. So it's really useful, and Inez pointed this out yesterday, to, I just want to reiterate, it's really useful to be attentive to uh, and take care of what's happening inside of us, in the mind and in the heart. It's onward leading, as we say, to do that. And one way of taking care of our inner life is to identify the mind states that are beneficial, that seem skillful, helpful, and then to direct our efforts to cultivate them. And I'll suggest a couple ways that we can do that. And then um, when helpful or beautiful states are present, 
there are uh, there are ways to encourage them to stick around. So th- that's the K part, the keeping part. And so I'll be talking about those two. And I'll also talk about the balance between making effort and letting go or easing up on effort. Um, when the mind is restless or agitated, when there's a lot of thinking, a lot of planning going on, a lot of worrying, or on the other hand, when there's a dullness, a tendency to zone out, to daydream, in both those, those situations, even though they seem like kind of opposite kinds of mental states, it can be really useful to make effort to stay more connected. And sometimes what's most helpful in developing a mind that's, uh, that's peaceful and open, that's able to see things clearly with mindfulness, is to relax and be more receptive, less active. So easing up on effort can be a way of, of keeping or maintaining healthy, helpful mental states and attitudes. So there's that balance. So there are those two last aspects of, of wise effort, the cultivation and the keeping aspects of beautiful mind states, <coughs> the C and the K. And then there's uh, developing skill in recognizing how much effort is actually needed in any you know, one moment of, of our lives. And then um, a third piece is looking at the quality of the effort that we're making, seeing what attitude it carries with it, what motivates it. And Inez spoke about that a little bit yesterday, and I'll just add a little bit to that. So first off, what are the kinds of attitudes, the kind of mental states that we want to cultivate. And in, in the Buddhist text, there are, of course, long lists, as there are of many things, many lists. Um, there are long lists of what are considered healthy mental uh, states and qualities, mental qualities. And I'll mention some as we go along, but I think probably, you know, we know what kind of things that, uh, you know, I'll be talking about. We have a good idea about those. I'll just name a few right now. Kindness, compassion, generosity, gratitude, diligence, tolerance, curiosity, love, and then mindfulness. <coughs> Here on retreat, we're spending many hours a day cultivating mindfulness. And um, I've heard it said that mindfulness is the one mental state that you cannot have too much of. <laughs> it's always appropriate. So it's a very skillful state. And we talk a lot about skillfulness in, in, the, uh, in the Buddhist world, in the speaking about uh, different qualities. Skillful action is the kind that leads toward greater freedom, greater peace in the mind and heart, less suffering, less stress, less hatred, less greed, the kind that's conducive to developing wisdom and compassion. And when we're doing this practice that we're doing, the mindfulness practice, staying here, being present, making the effort to train our attention to stay with our breath, with our bodies, our emotions, with our lived experience right now, we're, we're really cultivating that mindfulness. It's very skillful. It's a very skillful action. And we're also, I think, at the same time, we're cultivating persistence. We're cultivating patience, perhaps. 
and also creating the conditions for a calm and concentration, connected, collectedness, samadhi, to develop in the mind. And all of these are, are wholesome or skillful mental states or qualities. So we've been doing this for the past two days, all of us, just by be, being willing to be here, practicing sincerely, staying present to our experience, all of that. And then I hope that as you've been practicing, um, you've, you haven't been judging your experience. So I've heard from some people that they have been judging their experience. And what I'd like to suggest is that we cultivate friendliness towards, uh, towards our own minds as we practice. That's actually part of mindfulness. So even when, st- you know, staying with the mind and cultivating that, that friendliness, even when the mind is really wild, and uh, our attention is just unwilling to stay where we put it. And all the ways that we try to be kind, try to be like non-judgmental with our minds um, and accepting of what's going on in them are ways that we're practicing wise effort. Those are all skillful means. <coughs> so each time we sit for meditation and begin to settle, we can remind ourselves that mindfulness is kind. There's uh, one teacher, Ajahn Brahm, has, uh, has come to call it kindfulness. And he actually wrote a book recently with that title, Kindfulness. I've heard Gil also use that word, kindfulness. And we can cultivate this kindness um, during practice. Um, we can just let the awareness be in practice be in infused with kindness and openness. And that's wise effort. And I hope you'll do that. Both on and off the cushion, we can really consciously cultivate many of the helpful mental qualities. We can contemplate um, many of the reasons that we have to feel gratitude. We can practice the Brahma Viharas. I'm I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with these four beautiful mental states. Um, uh, Metta, which is loving kindness or basic friendliness, uh, compassion, Karuna, joy, especially joy and the joy of others, and equanimity, which is a balance of mind that can keep us really upright when when difficult winds are blowing in our lives. And there are specific practices that we can do in order to cultivate these uh, these four qualities, the Brahma Viharas. Perhaps you're familiar with metta practice. That's the one we do the most uh, most commonly. And we can engage in ethical activity as a way of cultivating beneficial mind states, skillful activity. When we live our lives with the intention not to harm, with the intention to be uh, generous, it creates conditions in the mind for these beautiful states to, uh, to be present, to become part of our kind of habitual orientation to life. So like simply being in line at the grocery store and letting somebody else go ahead of you, you know, just that very small, generous uh, act has the, it has the effect of just turning, turning the mind and heart in the direction of skillfulness, has an effect on our inner environment, our inner quality of life. There's a, a list of beautiful mental qualities called the paramis or perfections. Perhaps some of you um, are familiar with those. They include uh, Truthfulness, patience, determination, wisdom, renunciation, ethics, 
generosity, that's the first one, kindness, uh, which is metta, equanimity, and we can consciously train ourselves to bring these qualities, you know, into our mental activity, into our minds and activities. And when we do that, it's like feeding our minds with healthy food. I know people who um, make lists of things they're grateful for, you know, every day, either in the morning or in the evening before they go to bed, especially if they find themselves in a kind of, you know, ungrateful sort of state of mind. They'll you know, just in order to turn that around, they'll make a list. And some people do it every day. And I know people who email, have a, like a, f- a buddy who's like a, um, a mindfulness buddy who they'll email with every day with a, um, an example of something they did during the day that was especially mindful or especially generous or just some act that was, um, you know, that, that was uplifting to their spirit, to their mind or something they're grateful for, too. Having somebody else, um, you know, a friend, encourage us to remember to remember our, our good deeds and our, uh, our good thoughts is really helpful. And we can use uh, reminders. You know, I think a lot of us do this, put little uh, post-its on the refrigerator or maybe a mindfulness bell on our, on our uh, phones. I hate to mention phones <laughs> today, uh, or our computer screen or somewhere, and, uh, and it, you know, or an hourly bell. Yeah, did I mention bell? Yes, I did. Um, that just, you know, it can just say, hey, remember mindfulness or whatever it is that you're trying to cultivate. You know, patience, remember? Anything that can remind the mind to pause, you know, from its kind of churning that it, that it often does during the day and connect with something wholesome is a wise use of effort. So we can consciously incline the mind in these directions. We can take them up as as practices. All these things I've been mentioning, generosity, metta, compassion, mindfulness, concentration. We can make a conscious practice of being truthful, being patient, being grateful. And And what we practice becomes a mental habit in time. And, s- and so it really, it changes the environment in our inner world, in our minds. We're kind of rewiring the brain, you know, actually changing our neurology. We can do that when we change our mental environment in this way. It's a way of caring for ourselves, I think, in a really deep way. I remember when I was a, a kid, um, I was really uh, oriented towards uh, intellectual activity. Um, I thought of intelligence as, as intellectual endeavors, as like the highest uh, good in life. And when I was about 11 years old, I remember I was in sixth grade, the summer between sixth and seventh grade, um, someone asked me, would you rather be smart or would you rather be happy? And without even thinking about it, I mean, I didn't have to think for a second. I said, oh, I'd rather be smart, you know. All the people who I admired in my life were smart. And it didn't occur to me until, I'm embarrassed to say, how many years later, probably 30 (laughs) years later, you know, that it was possible to be both, to be both smart and happy. I spent a lot of my life uh, cultivating being right, being like self-righteously right, arguing and judging and criticizing others and criticizing myself especially more even than others. 
for any kind of defective reasoning or intellect, you know, any kind of shortcoming that I saw in that area. But after lots of years in this practice of cultivating, you know, openness and that friendliness, you know, friendliness to my own mind, friendliness to others, tolerance, compassion, when these old mental habits arise now, and they do, of course, arise, they still do, I can see through them, you know, I can see how unhelpful they are. And uh, I believe that I, I can say, I believe I can say that I have abandoned this as an approach to life, you know. When these tendencies arise, I, I, can, I know that I can choose a different road. And I'm happier as a result. And I think I'm probably just as smart. <laughs> and I'm wiser, you know, for sure, which is a lot more satisfying than being smart. There's a lot of uh, talk currently um, about the intersection of Buddhist thought and uh, neurology, you know, neuropsychology. And a lot of it, I think, is relevant to this um, topic of the wise efforts, the four wise efforts. There's a book uh, titled Buddha's Brain by uh, Rick Hansen. Maybe you've heard of it. It's, uh, it's very user-friendly. It's written for a lay audience, but um, it's, it's quite informative about, uh, about the you know, the neurological changes that happen as a result of mindfulness practice and, and this kind of effort of uh, cultivating beneficial mind states. Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, the Vietnamese Zen teacher has for a long time, he suge has suggested just putting a little, you know, like a half smile on your face when you're, uh, when you're meditating. And it, it turns out that smiling, it actually changes your, uh, your, your mental state. It's, you know, it has, uh, it has a physical, um, a physiological effect on the, on the, uh, on the, on the brain so that it makes your mental state more uh, happy. And uh, something Rick Hansen suggests is a practice of pausing for 30 seconds to really uh, deeply experience the felt sense of, of a, any skillful mental state that arises. Uh, during the day, so if you f feel a moment of kindness towards someone or happiness, some just some calm, you know, a, a little experience of calm or happiness, generosity. Um, if you can do that, according to researchers, if you can do that several times a day, I think it's four times a day for six weeks, that it actually changes um, your the neural pathways in your in your brain so that these states become more uh, accessible, more our default mode. So in a sense, we are rewiring our brains when we're, uh, when we're cultivating healthy mind states. And I've heard some people suggest that feels kind of fake, you know, that we're like making ourselves into something we aren't. But uh, that seems, it just seems to me like we're learning to value what's more conducive to long-term happiness than our habitual you know, mental s tendencies often, uh, often are. We're really taking care of our inner life. So, would you rather be smart or would you rather be happy? <laughs> Maybe it turns out that it's smart to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Cultivating a, a sense of well-being, um, I think it can give the mind uh, strength uh, when we're in difficult situations. I know that's the case. So we can, act we can actively practice cultivating um, an, an attitude that would be helpful 
in a particular situation. So, for instance, if we're going to meet uh, with somebody who we find difficult, you know, we have some tension with, we can cultivate um, goodwill towards that person, or we can cultivate just a sense of calm so that we don't get reactive in their presence. Um, if we're t- going for a, a job interview, for instance, where there's there might be a sense of anxiety, um, we can cultivate a sense of calm, a sense of being okay in ourselves before we before we enter the the situation. I have a friend uh, who recently was going to have dental surgery, and uh, it was something she has a lot of anxiety about. Does not like to go to the dentist, and she was really quite concerned. But she decided she would spend quite a bit of time, she spent hours actually, cultivating relaxation and ease before she went to the dentist's office. And it really helped her in that situation. And, uh, and it also really, it struck her, it taught her that, that um, on other, si- you know, other situations where there's difficulty that she knows now that she has the resources you know, to, to create mental states that are not to create but to allow mental states to arise that are uh, beneficial for difficult situations. Another way of uh, cultivating is um, to choose to spend our free time participating in activities that really help us develop a balanced sense of well-being. Um, for me, and I think for a lot of us, being outside in nature is one such uh, one such kind of uh, balancing, calming activity. And the sense of well-being that this brings can act as an antidote when, uh, when we're stressed or under emotional strain in some kind of difficulty. I'll often take a walk or just go and sit outside in my, uh, in my garden and look at the, there's a hillside opposite our house with trees on it and Often the trees are moving in the breeze, and that that can really bring a, a sense of calm to my mind when I'm stressed or or uh, upset about something. And uh, I also I make mosaics, um, the art mu- mosaics with little tiny pieces of glass and tile, and cr- focusing on creating a pattern and really getting absorbed in the process. I also find really balancing and calming. It it helps me in the same way. There's a kind of composure, concentration begins to develop in the mind. And I think for many of us, uh, art and music and crafts can be uh, really uplifting, really healthy for our minds. When I was um, younger, uh, I had a sort of mantra that I would repeat to myself at times, kind of went along with uh, uh, seeing the faults and things, and it was uh, nothing worth doing is easy. I think I even wrote it down in, you know, my journal in big letters and stuff. Nothing worth doing is easy. And uh, I've, I've, I've come to see that a lot of things worth doing are easy, you know. They, it's just like that smart or happy thing. It's, you don't have to choose between, you know, what's difficult and what's, uh, what's worth doing. Often they're the same, uh, what's easy and what's worth doing. It's really easy to smile and say hi to the, you know, to the checker at the grocery store. It's really easy for me. It's really easy to like hold somebody's baby while they're looking for their car keys, you know, in the parking lot somewhere. 
It's easy to take my sick neighbor's newspaper up to the door and hand it to him, pour a cup of coffee for my dear beloved <laughs> or for a friend. It's easy. Wise effort can be easy. It really can. So there are lots of ways to encourage our minds in, that, in the direction of skillfulness, and those are a few of them. And then keeping or maintaining the be- beneficial mind states that, uh, that have are already present. That's the fourth part of, of wise effort. So not ignoring them, but appreciating them, allowing them to continue. And uh, in general, I think that can happen in life and in practice. We want to practice it not just on the cushion, but uh, also in daily life. That practice of taking 30 seconds to really appreciate when, a, when something good has happened, that's, that's a way of, uh, of doing that. And I think there are many times a, in a day when if we, were, if we were being mindful, if we were really looking, we'd notice that our minds are contented, that our minds are at rest, that they're balanced. And uh, to appreciate that, to really let that be uh, real for us, is um, I think it's really beneficial. When there's calm in the mind during a meditation session, you know, that's another time to just appreciate it, to invite it to remain. When there's clarity, you know, we can notice that. And again, just invite it to stay. And then don't cling to it, of course. That's the, that's the other side. If there's pleasure in meditation as a result of, you know, collectedness of samadhi beginning to develop, concentration beginning to develop, we can allow that pleasure to expand, to fill us up. That's really a wholesome thing to do. When wholesome, uh, something ho- wholesome happens in life, even something really minor like, you know, seeing a child play and just having, you know, a little bit of pleasure and seeing the joy of the child or a dog on the beach or something, we can allow ourselves to really, just really experience the goodness of it, you know, the simplicity of it. And I think it's really useful to recognize that um, that all these mind states that I've been talking about that are beneficial, that they're actually, uh, they're very satisfying to feel in the mind. They're very pleasant. They're, um, even equanimity, which is, you know, as often it's considered sort of neutral. It's a very balanced state, a really uh, highly, uh, highly developed balance and, uh, and openness, peacefulness. Um, it has a peaceful quality that's really satisfying. I don't really, I don't know of any mind, any skillful mind states that, that aren't really um, pretty satisfying. Inez talked about uh, sadness and grief yesterday as states that are really useful, but they're not, we don't actually cultivate them, you know, we just are there with them when they arise and notice the, uh, the beauty that can be in them. And of course, noticing the pleasantness of, of these states that can lead to clinging to them, so... That's something to really look out for. It's not skillful. If we cling, we will suffer. That's, you know, kind of goes with, that's, that's a pretty much a rule of thumb. If we cling, we will suffer. So we need to exert some effort to discern if our appreciation of a lovely uh, mental state, you know, is moving into a, a craving kind of uh, mind state. If we're craving for it to stay or, or if we have a sense that if it goes, you know, that'll be a problem. We'll we failed somehow in our meditation or in our life. And we can use the, um, 
that first as aspect of wise effort that, uh, that Inez talked about yesterday, the avoiding aspect, we can use that to help um, maintain beneficial mind states. There's something that I often find is that I can be in a, a peaceful, calm state, uh, maybe just eating my lunch and, you know, just enjoying eating my lunch. And then suddenly a thought about uh, what I have to do in the afternoon, some project or chore I have to complete, will come in and, and I'll s start to maybe feel worried about it and feel some pressure to get it done, maybe to hurry, that kind of thing. And then if I catch myself, I can just let that go and, and you know, recognize I can just be right here. I can eat my lunch now. There's plenty of time to worry about that later or not to worry about it, to deal with it. Much more effective. And if I can do that, if I can just let go, then my mind will stay more calm and centered. So these four wise efforts are really important ways of being skillful in the, of, of choosing what's beneficial for us in our lives. And, um, and part of the skill really lies in noticing if there's, a, if there's attachment to being in a pleasant state or a kind of needy desire to avoid what's difficult. Because mindfulness practice really, it invites us to be present. As we've been talking about, you know, this whole weekend, it invites us to be present to what's difficult in our lives as well as what isn't difficult. It invites us to... to be present to the whole range of our experience to see clearly what's causing us difficulty, what's, uh, what's causing us uh, to be uh, uh, without difficulty as well. So seeing clearly, you know, having clear mindfulness is the way to freedom. And cultivating wholesome, beneficial mind states, it gives the mind resiliency. It helps us to develop the strength of mind to be able to stay, to stay present and mindful when things do get tough in our lives and in our world as well. And we, so we don't cultivate these states in order to avoid what's unpleasant in life, but in order to learn to meet whatever comes with a more balanced heart, a more balanced mind. And then also along with um, avoiding uh, unhelpful attitudes or cultivating helpful ones, the, the four wise efforts, part of learning to be wise with our effort is learning how much effort is necessary at any particular time. Are we being lazy? You know, are we bored? Are we disconnected? It, then it might be time to bring in more effort, more energy more curiosity into our practice. Are we getting tense in our body? Is our breathing shallow? Is it tight? Um, is the mind feeling tight? You know, Gil often talks about relaxing the thinking muscle. You know, sometimes when we're really caught up in thinking, we can really feel it's like something in, the, something in there is really tight. And if we can just let that go a little bit. So it's, it can be more skillful to let go of effort and to relax um, in, in those cases. Creating tension or stress through our effort, isn't it, that's not skillful. Finding the balance between too much and too little effort, that's something that I think we're just doing all the time in our practice from the time we first maybe take our very first mindfulness class until, you know, 30, 40, 50 years on. We're st always finding that balance, doing the dance of how much effort is necessary. 
And we just, we can pay attention to what the effect of our effort is, you know, on our, our overall mental state. And then if we need to change gears, either, you know, shift up or shift down, um, we can do that. And there's a, there's a story in the suttas that um, r- r- illustrates that. It's a really well-known story. Maybe you've heard it before. The story of Sona and the lute, the strings of the lute. Sona was a monk um, who was uh, working so hard. It was said that uh, uh, in the sutta, it says that he was doing walking meditation so uh, assiduously that the soles of his feet were bleeding. And he was feeling really disappointed because he was making all this effort in his practice and he didn't feel like he was getting anywhere. He wasn't, you know, moving towards uh, awakening. And he was having these thoughts in his mind as he was walking that he was going to give up and uh, disrobe, you know, take off his monk's robes and go back to his life. Uh, He had been a a wealthy man when he was a, a a lay person. And he, he thinks, I'll just go back to my life and I'll live on my wealth and I'll do meritorious acts, you know, and be a good person, but I won't just try to make all this uh, effort. And in the sutta, um, the Buddha is said to be in another part of the country, and, uh, but in, with his all-seeing eye, he sees Sona and he knows what's in his mind. And uh, I read this part as being mythological, but, you know, you can take it as you'd like. The sutta says that the Buddha magically transported, transported himself to where Sona was to speak with him and, uh, and to try to turn his mind back toward the Dharma. So I'm going to read uh, the, this part of the sutta that uh, is the conversation between the Buddha and Sona. The Buddha says, I have to clear my throat again. Tell me, Sona, when you lived at home, weren't you skilled at the lute? Yes, sir. What do you think, Sona? When its strings were too tight, was your lute well-tuned and easy to play? No, sir. When its strings were too loose, was your lute well-tuned and easy to play? No, sir. But Sona... When its strings were neither too tight nor too loose, but adjusted to a balanced pitch, was your lute well-tuned and easy to play? Yes, sir. So too, Sona. If energy is aroused too forcefully, this leads to restlessness. And if energy is too lax, this leads to laziness. Therefore, Sona, resolve on a balance of energy, achieve evenness of the spiritual faculties, and take up your object there. Yes, sir, he said. And so that's what Sona did. And according to the text, um, it wasn't very long before he was fully liberated as a result, finding balance. So we're not making any promises about that. (laughs) But it's onward leading, you know. And I, I love this. I love this story, and I have this feeling about uh, reading this sutta that the Buddha may have been thinking about his own early life a little bit, because you know he too had been a wealthy young man living with all kinds of comforts, all kinds of luxuries, before he realized that that way of life was not going to lead, you know, to long-term happiness, to an end of suffering. So he left home, and of course he studied with many well-known teachers of the time. And in the period just before his uh, awakening, just before he sat under the 
the Bodhi tree and, uh, you know, made that final effort for awakening. He had also been doing really austere practice. He wasn't walking till he had uh, blood, you know, bloody soles of his feet, but they s- there are pictures of him and it's said that he was practicing to with such austerity that he was only eating like one grain of rice a day or maybe it was three grains of rice a day. And that if you pressed his belly button, you could feel his backbone. So he was pretty much starving himself. And then there was a point where he realized that this kind of effort was not onward leading, you know. Um, it wasn't leading him in the direction of freedom. And then and he accepted an offering of food from a woman. And then he changed the direction of his practice and he came to what we think of as, uh, as the, middle, the middle way. And before too long, you know, he he made his final uh, effort and he became the Buddha. He became fully liberated. And so I kind of, I can see him sort of having compassion for Sona, whose discouragement was really the product of overexertion of effort. You know, it was too much effort. The strings of his inner lute, you know, they were way too tight, not conducive to making beautiful music. And um, to continue with that metaphor, you know, it takes a different amount of tension in the strings um, of a musical instrument to produce a desired note depending on all kinds of conditions, like the temperature and the humidity, the altitude that you're at, the thickness of the strings. There are all these conditions that affect how much tension is needed. There's no one correct amount across the board. And the same is true in our practice. There's no one amount of tension, of effort that's, oh, that's appropriate across the board. So finding that balance, you know, that middle way, that's an ongoing exploration. And as we practice, we do, I, I know, we, we develop more skill in learning where, uh, where the, the strings are too tight and the, or the strings are too loose, where we might need to ease up and where we might need to apply more effort. And it takes time to do that, you know, recognizing that balance. And as I said before, you know, we still, after 30, 40 years of practice, we're still doing that, working with that balance. But there are ways that we can check in with ourselves, you know, to notice uh, whether uh, we're p- applying more effort than needed, maybe, or, uh, or whether we need to bump it up somewhat. But, and hopefully we don't wait until, you know, uh, we have the bloody soles of our feet before we ease up a little bit. So how do we know? How do we know we're making a balanced effort? Um, We start, as we start with everything, I hope you'll take this home with you, that the the best place to start anything in a mindfulness practice is by checking in with our bodies. So we notice, is there, you know, is there tightness or tension in the jaw, in the, um, in the forehead? Those are really common places for tension. The neck, the shoulders, the chest, any place. Is our breathing shallow? And then after we've checked in with our bodies, we can look at uh, the mind and see, is, you know, is there some tightness there? Is that thinking muscle all scrunched up? I think some of us habitually make uh, make effort in a really tight, controlled way, and and so we need to really turn our attention to uh, to our physical experience and see: is there, you know, is there more? Am I holding here more than I need to for uh, 
for the job at hand, the task of being mindful. And that really tight kind of effort, um, it really, it can lead away from the kind of um, mental states that are beneficial. So can we just soften a bit? You know, we can lengthen the breath a little bit, especially the out breath that really um, helps with relaxation. Can encourage the mind to just relax a little bit. Let the shoulders drop, let the chest expand, cultivate some calm. Grounding ourselves, you know, feeling our bodies, our hands on our thighs, that's one that's always useful for me. The feeling of my legs on the, on the cushion, just really knowing I'm here in my body physically. That can be, t- we can become kind of more receptive and more soft as a result of that. And then sometimes we find that actually the strings are pretty loose, you know. It's going boom, boom, boom (laughs) when we play our internal strings. And we can brighten the mind then by uh, cultivating inquiry, you know, curiosity, investigation. Um, Yesterday, uh, Inez mentioned effort brings energy, you know, and the effort to be curious, to be be investigating, that really... uh, that brings more energy. We can ask, what's going on here? You know, what's, what's really, what does it really feel like here? And we can do noting. You know, we talked about that subvocal noting with, with the breath. It's like in, out, or rising, falling. Or we can note thinking. We can note whatever is going on. Counting breaths. That's a, another way that we can bring more focus, more energy. And, uh, and also something I do often uh, when I'm feeling a little bit distracted or kind of uh, low on uh, effort is to really focus on connecting with the breath r- all the way through the breath, you know, connecting at the very beginning of the breath and all the way through the in-breath and then connecting all the way through the out-breath. And that can really, that can build energy and concentration both. And in a retreat setting like here, you know, we can do more formal sitting if that helps. And on the other hand, we might do more walking. It just depends on our own, you know, individual uh, minds because different things work for different people. We have to experiment. We might stay up later, practice more, or we might take a nap. That might increase our energy. I think each of us discovers our own way of finding this balance in practice and in life. It takes time, and we go back and forth, tightening and loosening. But when the strings are in tune, you know, there's harmony. And sometimes that, that kind of balance just doesn't seem to be in the cards. You know, we can try all our skillful means, and still we might be entangled in stressful thinking. We might be drifting into daydreams, either end of the energy spectrum. But we keep sitting, you know, maybe we're desperate for that bell to ring but you know we don't run out of the room we stay we sit we don't give up and there's a teacher uh, Shinzen Young a well-known mindfulness teacher has said sometimes a successful meditation is defined by the fact that you didn't get up just that much you know sometimes that's all we can do and in, in my own practice, um, often at the beginning of a sit, uh, I'll need to use more en- energy in order to stay present. 
If my mind is especially busy or distracted, I might use um, noting, a little bit of noting, soft, just the soft in-out or rising-falling uh, until I begin to feel more settled. And then at that point, often I'll just I'll let go of effort as long as uh, the aw- awareness is able to stay with th- um, the object of my meditation, with, with whatever it is, whether it's the breath or whatever is arising. And then sometimes later I'll feel myself distracted again and I'll go back to, you know, just some simple way of bringing a little bit more energy into the, uh, into the practice by making effort, like counting, counting breaths or trying to cultivate more interest in what's happening, staying, really sticking with uh, the breath in that way I described. So it's kind of a dance, you know, we pick up effort when it's needed, we let it rest when there's a kind of effortless energy that, that develops uh, in the mind and, and then the meditation develops its own momentum, which can be really, really delightful. And then it's not just the amount of effort that we make that's important, but it's also how we're making it. So that's this, the last part of the puzzle that I'm going to talk about. What's the attitude that comes with it? You know, what's driving it? Sometimes we sit and we're striving, we're straining, you know, we're trying to make something happen. We might strive to get rid of some difficult, unpleasant uh, mind state, fear or anger or sadness, acting out of dislike for what's going on in our mind. And when we do that, we're not cultivating mindfulness. We're cultivating dislike. We're cultivating aversion. Our effort is feeding the aversion. And sometimes we sit with shoulds, you know, my mind should be more quiet, it should be more mindful, it should be more contented, more this, more that. And effort gets infused with that quality, that shoulding. And it's another variety of uh, self-judgment, you know, of aversion really to ourselves, to our own experience. It's effort, uh, we want to be sure effort isn't fueled by a need to get to some specific state. And if it is, we notice it. Oh, I'm really, there's real striving here to, to reach some p- specific state. We just become aware of it, we know it, and we try to let go, just become a little bit more at ease with it. Anytime uh, it's fueled by need, then we're cultiv- that's what we're cultivating. We're cultivating the need. We're not, we're not actually cultivating mindfulness. It's not wise effort, and it just leads to more stress. So we can press a reset button, sort of, you know, just start again, letting our effort be infused with the qualities that, we're, that I've been talking about as cultivating, you know, kindness, openness, peacefulness. And sometimes our effort is uh, kind of half-hearted or lackadaisical. I kind of picture myself sort of yawning. Okay, yeah, I'll do this. And uh, and and most of the mind is just sort of uh, occupied with some past or future or fantasy, and and the effort to stay with the breath is sort of in the background. So the foreground background gets switched instead of the fo- breath being in the foreground. Everything else is. Or we can, sometimes we can be sort of uh, dutiful with a, I think of it as sort of a teenage attitude, you know, okay, I'll do it, you know. And then that's what we're cultivating, you know, we're cultivating that, uh, that resistance or the half-heartedness that I spoke of. 
And then in, the, in those cases, are efforts being used to reinforce um, the kind of habits of mind that keep us stuck rather than uh, those that open us to, uh, to what is onward leading? It's not conducive to clear mindfulness. We can just see it, know it, look on it with kindness, not compounding the suffering with, you know, more self-judgment. Gill has uh, likened effort used wisely to the flow of a river over rocks. And I really, I really like that analogy. I think it's beautiful. Water is just, you know, it's so soft, it's so yielding, and yet it just keeps moving on. It's really persistent. It goes around obstacles, you know, without having any aversion to them. It doesn't try to grab onto the trees it goes by as it flows down the river. Uh, it just moves on. And with time, it makes, you know, enormous things happen. The, the Grand Canyon, you know, it's like a mile deep. It's cut through layers and layers of hard rock just with this persistent flow of a river, you know. And our effort can be like that. It can be soft and yet persistent, determined. And, and that's a really wise way of using it. And then I, I came upon this quote uh, from Jack Cornfield. He was describing it in, a, in another way. I, I'm going to read this. This is what Jack said. Asked to reflect on how I have changed my mind and perspective over years of Dharma practice and teaching, I recognize that I've changed my mind about a hundred things. Effort in meditation is one example. I used to think that to become free, you had to practice like a samurai warrior. But now I understand that you have to practice like a devoted mother of a newborn child. It takes the same energy, but has a completely different quality. It's unwavering compassion and presence that liberates, rather than having to defeat an enemy in battle. So I really like that. The, you know... A devoted mother of a newborn child or a river, you know, the water in a river flowing. And uh, to go back to the story of Sona, the lute, lute player, I just want to extend the metaphor a bit just to end here. So um, I was thinking maybe we can think about uh, mental states or attitudes as kind of the musical notes, all the musical notes that we have to choose from. So we want to avoid using notes that clash that are painful to the ear. Instead, we choose notes that are melodic, that are harmonious. And then we tune our instrument. We get the strings, you know, balanced so they're not too taut, not too loose, balancing the tension of our effort. And then we begin to play. We can play softly with a light touch, like a river flowing over the rocks, and we keep playing. And, uh, and then we can listen for the music that comes. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> Thank you very much for your attention.